Well, I forgot to include Blake and uh, our worship team uh, in our prayer this morning, but uh, please remember to be praying for Blake as he leads our worship this week. And um, we know that uh, God has really blessed us with, with Blake here uh, to lead us every Sunday and Wednesday, but um, if you've never seen him in a context with young people, um, he really, really uh, is, is a particularly gifted in leading young people uh, in worship. And so I'm very excited to see him in his element, if you will, uh, this week and uh, leading us and preparing our hearts to, to, to hear the word of God. So be praying for him. Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and, and turn back to Psalm 51, and we're going to uh, continue where we left off last week, uh, looking at this roadmap for repentance. And uh, I confessed to you last week that, that uh, since I became a Christian sometime back in junior high, I have turned to this particular psalm more often than any other passage in the Bible. I guess you could say I have a love-hate relationship with Psalm 51. I love it because it served me well as a reliable guide to uh, bring me back to intimacy with God after I've walked away from Him in sin. But I also hate it because whenever I read it, that typically means that I've sinned yet again. (laughs) And I've strayed away from the Lord. Another tried and true resource that has helped me get Right with God after I've sinned is this uh, well-worn copy of the Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions, and uh, it's just a very inspiring, very humbling uh, booklet to read. In fact, they have an entire section uh, called Penitence and Deprecation. That sounds like a fun, quiet time, doesn't it? Uh, Let me just read for you some of the titles. Self-Knowledge, The Dark Guest, Heart Corruptions, Self-Deprecation, The Deeps, Continual Repentance, Confession and Petition, Contrition, Humiliation, Mortification, Purification, Reproofs, The Broken Heart, Shortcomings, Backsliding, Sins, Pride, Passion, Penitence, A Cry for Deliverance, Mercy, A New Beginning. I wanted to read for you um, from one of the most painful yet helpful prayers that I've read in this book. It's entitled, Yet I Sin. It goes like this, Eternal Father, thou art good beyond all thought, but I am vile, wretched, miserable, blind. My lips are ready to confess, but my heart is slow to feel, and my way is reluctant to amend. I bring my soul to thee, break it, wound it, bend it, mold it. Unmask to me sin's deformity, that I may hate it, abhor it, flee from it. My faculties have been a weapon of revolt against thee. As a rebel, I have misused my strength and served the foul adversary of thy kingdom. Give me grace to bewail my incident folly. Grant me to know that the way of the transgressor is hard, that evil paths are wretched paths, and that to depart from thee is to lose all good. Thy loving spirit strives within me, brings me scripture warnings, allures by secret whispers, yet I choose devices and desires to my own hurt, impiously resent, grieve, and provoke him to abandon me. 
All these sins I mourn, lament, and for them cry pardon. Work in me more profound and abiding repentance, and grant that through the tears of repentance I may see more clearly the brightness and the glories of the saving cross. That's some good stuff. And uh, if you don't have a copy of this book, I'd encourage you to to get one and uh, just kind of put it alongside your Bible and kind of use them together uh, as you pursue uh, godliness. Well, as that prayer has mentioned, the process of sanctification involves, as we've been talking about, both looking to Jesus and what he has accomplished for us on the cross, while at the same time laying aside the sin that so easily entangles us. And so with the work of Christ, clearly in our view, we must work to put off sin, to resist sin, to flee from sin, to fight sin, to strive against sin. And yet, as we mentioned last week, no matter how hard we try to mortify sin in the power of the Spirit, we will still sin at times. And so a vital part of the sanctification process is knowing what to do when that happens. I mean, let's be honest, all of us sin every day, and when we do sin, it's like we walk away from God. And the longer we go on sinning, the farther we get from God. The question is, once we are away from the Lord, how can we get back in a right relationship with Him? Well, the Bible calls it repentance, turning away from sin back to God. And there's no better explanation or illustration of repentance in the entire Bible than this prayer that David prayed in Psalm 51 after the prophet Nathan confronted him about his adulterous affair with Bathsheba and his murderous plot against her husband Uriah. And that is the context. You can tell that by the little subtitle in your Bible. It says, A Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. And so here in in David's penitent prayer, we have a classic description of of repentance. We we see the elements or the steps of of genuine repentance. We see what repentance looks like. We see what it sounds like. And we said last week that, that really here, David illustrates for us four steps that every sinner must take to get back in a right relationship with God. And uh, I kind of left you hanging last week. We took the first two steps and stopped. And you're like, oh, I got to wait here all week before I can take the, next two, the last two steps. But uh, we, we're going to finish it up this morning. But what are these four steps? Well, number one, we said, is to cry for mercy. The first step you need to take when you find yourself away from God, the first step uh, back to God is to cry for mercy. We saw that in verses 1 and 2, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. And so David's repentance began by, by begging God to have mercy on him. On him. Now, to, he basically said, God, don't give me what I deserve. Because even though he deserved to be stoned to death for for what he had done, he had committed adultery, he had committed murder, uh, he appealed to what he knew to be true about God's love and compassion. And this was a good reminder for us that we can never do anything so bad or so many times that God won't forgive us if we're willing to confess it to him. And so we need to cry for mercy. 
Secondly, we said we need to confess our sin. That's the second step. After you cry for mercy, you confess your sin. And that's what David essentially did in verses 3 through 6. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, your desire, you desire truth in my innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Notice that David's confession was not simply listing off to God the things that he had done wrong as if God hadn't already known that. It's as if he had committed adultery and, and committed murder in the very throne room of God. God saw the whole thing. And so he didn't need to tell God, but he simply needed to confess to God, which literally means to agree with God about your sin or to say the same thing as God says about your sin. And so David agreed with God that it was his fault. Verse 3, he didn't blame anyone else. He didn't make excuses. He also agreed with God that it displeased him and that he deserved to be punished. Lord, I got it coming to me and I deserve it. And whatever you see fit to do, I'll I'll accept it because I know I deserve it. He also agreed with God about his depravity. Listen, God, uh, this isn't the first time and this won't be the last because I was conceived in iniquity. Uh, I was born into iniquity and in, in iniquity in in sin my mother conceived me. I'm a depraved man. And then finally, he agreed with God about his integrity. He said, listen, I, I know what you expect of me and that's to be a man of integrity. And I've not been a man of integrity, but you're gonna teach me how to be a man of integrity. And so rather than to continue to conceal his sin, remember he, he had covered his sin for almost a year, he finally confessed it and he experienced the promise of Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, which says, he who conceals his transgression will not prosper. He, he, he had experienced that part for almost a year, right? Not, not uh, prospering as he was hiding his sin. But it says, he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And he experienced God's compassion as it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We said that there was an element of confession that's not specifically stated here, but it's more implied, and that is this. When we confess our sin, we're agreeing not to what? Remember? not to do it again. We're agreeing not to do it again. And uh, we left last week with that delightful picture in our minds of a dog returning to its vomit, which is a biblical example that's given in the New Testament uh, for those of us, um, or how, how hideous, how gross it is for us who have been saved, right, to return to our sin, our life of sin. And so... First of all, we need to cry for mercy. Secondly, we need to confess our sin. And then thirdly, now let's take the third step together. We need to call out for forgiveness. We need to call for forgiveness. Notice what David said in verses 7 through 12. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. And so the third step back to God is asking him to forgive us. And to forgive means to to pardon someone or to not hold their sin against them or to cancel their punishment altogether. And and I want want us to notice here that that each verse in this section explains a different aspect of the forgiveness that God provides the repentant sinner. And notice the things that that David was essentially asking for um, as he was asking for forgiveness. Number one, he asked God for cleansing. He asked God for cleansing. Verse 7, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. That word purify literally means to descend me. God, just, just, just descend me. And hyssop in the Hebrew culture was an instrument of purification. It was something that the priest would dip into, uh, into some blood or some water and, and brush it or sprinkle it on a person who may have had an infectious disease or someone who had touched a dead body to symbolize that they were now ceremonially what? Clean. And so he's asking for cleansing here. He says, wash me and I shall be what? Whiter than snow which should remind us of another verse in Scripture. It's what God would say to rebellious Israel years later in Isaiah 1, chapter 1, verse 18. He said, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as what? Scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Talk about being cleansed, completely cleansed. And so when we ask for forgiveness, God provides cleansing. He provides cleansing. Secondly, David asked God for healing. He asked God for healing. Notice verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Now, according to 2 Samuel 12, David was so sad and so depressed when uh, he found out, when the Lord told him, hey, as punishment for your adultery, the, 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 the child that was conceived in sin will die. And so he was, he was completely depressed. He wouldn't eat, he wouldn't talk. He just kind of laid there on the floor and he was begging God to, to spare the life of that child. And so when his son died, his attendants were, were afraid to tell David for fear of what he might do. I mean, he's already so depressed. But what happens if we tell him? Maybe he'll, he's suicidal, we don't know. Well, David heard them discussing what they should do and after confirming that the child was dead, he did the strangest thing, totally shocked his attendants. He, he got up, he washed, he anointed himself, and he went to the temple and he worshiped. Why? Because God is able to turn our tears of mourning into laughter and rejoicing. Make me to hear joy and gladness. God, I'm, 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 I'm tired of crying I'm tired of mourning. I want to laugh again. I want to have joy again. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. He says, Make me to hear joy and gladness. But then notice he also says, Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Rejoice. 
kind of an odd phrase there, but for starters, go back to Psalm 32, just a second, Psalm 32, just back a few pages. Uh, this, I think, is a sister psalm to Psalm 51. This is probably a psalm that David wrote um, sometime after Psalm 51 as he was um, rejoicing in the blessedness of the forgiveness that he had received from God. Um, But notice verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 32. He says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. And so while he had done a good job of covering his tracks, if you will, hiding that sin had sucked the life out of David's soul. And I think Psalm 32 is a reference to the psychological and and physiological effects of sin. And and sometimes God may afflict us mentally uh, and or physically to get our attention so that we'll repent of our sin and, and come back to him. I think a classic example would be Nebuchadnezzar, right, in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar was a very ungodly, arrogant man who, who, who took gl- uh, pride in all of his accomplishments and he basically uh, wanted all the glory for what he had accomplished in, 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 uh, in, in, in uh, Babylon. And so God turned him into a cow, at least in his mind. And uh, he went out and, and went crazy. Literally, he went crazy. He went down and he was roaming around and, and grazing like, like a cow, an animal, for seven years. He went insane. Some would say he had schizophrenia, not that we agree with that diagnosis, that secular diagnosis, but that was an example of somebody that, that wasn't in his right mind. And how did that happen? Well, it was a result of his pride. And at the end of those seven years, he came out of that and said, you know what, I realize now, this is what happens when you exalt yourself, God humbles you. And, and now I know that God is the one who deserves all the glory for everything that's gone on in my life and in my kingdom. Psalm 119, verse 75 says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Sometimes God inflicts faithful wounds mentally and physically. Now back to that, let the bones which you have broken rejoice. What was David before he became a king? He was a shepherd boy. And sometimes if a shepherd had a wayward sheep, a little sheep that kept running off, um, what they would do from time to time is to take that little sheep and break one of its legs and, and put a splint on it and wrap it up. And, uh, and, and of course, because he couldn't walk at that point, the shepherd would have to carry that little sheep for the number of weeks or months that it would take for that leg to heal. And what do you think was going on during those weeks and months as that shepherd was carrying that sheep around? There was a bonding going on between that shepherd and that sheep. And so when that leg was finally healed and he took the splint off, he put that little sheep down, and guess where you think that, where do you think that little sheep stayed? Right by his side. And I think that could be the imagery here that David was using, saying, Lord, okay, you you broke my leg, God, and I deserved it, right? And and I've learned my lesson, and and if you would just heal me, I I will stay right by your side. I will never stray again. 
Proverbs 3.12, for whom the Lord loves, he, what? Reproves, disciplines, even as the Father corrects the Son in whom he delights. And so when you ask God for forgiveness, he provides healing. He provides healing, whether it's mental healing, physical healing, or even just spiritual healing. But notice the third thing that David asked for here was he asked God for forgetting. He asked God for forgetting. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Hide your face. He's saying completely disregard my sin. Just refuse to look at it, God. And, and blot out means to, to cancel or, or to forget. Now you're like, David, listen, but I appreciate you being a man after God's own heart and everything, but dude, don't you realize that God is omniscient? He, he never learned anything, and, so, and he never forgets anything because he always knows everything. He always has, he always will. How do you think God's going to forget your sin? Well, listen to some verses in the Old Testament. Psalm 103, verse 12, and these verses are all about what does God do with our sin when we confess it and we ask for forgiveness? What does he do with it? Where does it go? Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the, what? East is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. How far is it from the east to the west? Infinity, right? It just keeps going and going and going and going. And so there's this infinite distance between us and our transgressions. Isaiah 38, 17, you have cast all my sins behind your back. We come before the throne of God. We confess our sin. We seek his forgiveness. He takes our sin and goes. He whips it over his shoulder. Micah 7, 21, he will again have compassion on us. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You've heard the expression, right, that God casts our sin into the deepest sea. Do you realize there's some parts of the ocean that, that are so deep that we've not even been able to get down that deep as, as human beings? We, we were just at the aquarium in Singapore. It was really a famous aquarium there, and there was a section where you could see you know, some of the fish that are like way, way down there. Man, there's some freaky stuff down there. They got little light bulbs on their heads, you know, little miners, these fish, God made them with these little miner hats. It's crazy. But that's where our sin goes, where guess what? No man can go. And then Isaiah 43, 25, I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. You're like, wait a minute, how can God tell us that he's not going to remember our sins? I think what he meant by that was that he will not bring them up again. He'll not use them against us, right? And so when they come back up in our minds, because that's how we are, we confess our sin and then we ask God to forgive us and he forgives us and then we go away and we start to feel guilty again about him. We start to talk to God about him and we go back to God, I, I, you know I already asked for that, but I'm really, I'm going to ask again, would you forgive me? And God's like, what are you talking about? What sin? He chooses not to remember those sins. And so when you ask God for, forgive, for forgiveness, he forgets your sin. Notice David also asks God for renewing here. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That word create is an interesting word because it's the same word that was used in Genesis 1 to talk about God creating the earth, creating the universe. 
And so as one commentator says, David was asking for nothing less than a miracle here. He he desired what only God could provide a new, fresh, clean, recreated heart as opposed to an evil, dirty heart. God had had given him one heart and it was like he messed it up, right? And he's like, God, I want want a heart transplant. I I want to trade this one in for a new one. So he says, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David, David used to have this firm and fixed purpose to do what, what was right. He was a man after God's own heart. And he was asking God to give that back to him. He, he, he just said, man, I, I just want to get back to that place where I just, you don't have to twist my arm to, to honor you and obey you. I, I just want to do the right thing. And you know what it's like after you've been forgiven for your sin, right? You've confessed sin and you've asked God to forgive you and you know he forgives you, he cleanses you. Man, you have a, a renewed sense of vigor in the, in the Christian race, don't you? And, and you have a renewed passion to be holy, to be righteous. And so when you ask God for forgiveness, he, he provides this renewal. Notice he also asked God for comforting. He also asked God for comforting here in verse 11. He says, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now we need to be careful here that we don't misunderstand what what David was saying. David was not scared of losing his salvation. He was scared of losing his position. Let me say that again. David was not scared about losing his salvation. He was scared about losing his position. David took his position as king very seriously. He had replaced a king who God had to remove as a result of his sin. Remember how that happened? How that went down? After Saul had failed to totally wipe out the Amalekites and and, and he had decided to spare their king, King Agag, and, 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 and so here comes Samuel and Saul runs out to him and he says, hey, uh, you know, I've done what, what, what you told me to do. And, and um, Sam was like, no, he didn't. No, you didn't. Because uh, what are all these sheep doing around, all these Amalekite sheep that you spared? How about this king that you spared? And so Samuel said, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So David says, don't cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. In the Old Testament, the the Holy Spirit would anoint people for special acts of service. This wasn't the same thing as as the New Testament uh, where it talks about when when the Holy Spirit baptizes or seals someone when they're saved. David wasn't referring to salvation here. Again, he's he's referring to his position as king. And, And so when Saul sinned, God regretted making him king, and so he he removed his spirit that had come upon him to give him the power and the authority for the task of serving as Israel's king. And so David was afraid that God would do the same thing to him, That that he would regret making him king. And so he wanted to still be useful to God, and and he longed for the reassurance that God would not reject him like he had rejected Saul. And so, again, when you ask God for forgiveness, he provides comforting. He provides comforting. And then finally, notice how David asked God for restoring or sustaining. Verse 12. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Here he asked God to restore the joy that he once had in his relationship with him. And again, it's important to note here that that David wasn't asking God to restore his salvation as if he had lost it and needed to get it back again. It, It wasn't the salvation he had lost, but the joy that he had lost. And listen, as long as we are, we're, we're living in sin, we have no joy, right? Because our fellowship with God is broken. That's what he's saying. And now that he had repented of his sin, he, he wanted to have that joy back. You know, I think this is really insightful and really relevant this whole idea of restore me the joy of your salvation. What does sin promise us when we're being tempted to sin? It promises us what? Joy. It promises us promises happiness. This will make you happy. This will make you feel good. This will, this will bring you joy when ultimately, what does it do? It, it robs you of joy. It steals your joy. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And so when we choose to sin, we choose to be sad and to suffer. Think about that next time you're staring temptation in the face and you're trying to make a decision, am I gonna go ahead and do this or not? Well, just know that if you choose to sin, you are choosing to be sad. You're choosing to suffer. So he says, restore to me the joy of, my, of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. David was asking God to just give him a, a willingness to obey. Give me that spontaneous spirit that I used to have that, that doesn't need to be forced to do what you want me to do. And so when you ask God for forgiveness, he provides restoration. He provides restoration. One commentator said very wisely the fact that the psalmist prays for so many things here in verses 7 through 12 indicates how many things he knew he had lost when he had plunged into sin. I mean, everything David mentioned here in this section, cleansing, healing, forgetting, renewing, comforting, restoring, sustaining, these are all what we forfeit when we hold on to our sin. I mean, with so much to to lose, only a fool would keep silent about their sin and continue in their sin. And some of you know exactly what David is talking about here because you are sitting here even now with God's hand heavy upon you. And you feel guilty and you're depressed and you're joyless and you're useless to God all because you won't ask him to forgive you for your sin. And so I urge you this morning to come clean. Don't hide it anymore. Confess it, forsake it, so you can enjoy all the blessings of forgiveness. David talked about those blessings again back in Psalm 32. We read the the negative part of Psalm 32, verses three and four, but look at the first two verses. Psalm 32, one, how blessed Or happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed, how happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. I love that. And so the second, or excuse me, the third step back to God after we sin is to call for forgiveness. To call for forgiveness. So we need to cry for mercy. We need to confess our sin. We need to call for forgiveness. And finally, the last step is to commit to obey. We need to commit to obey. Notice verse 13. Then... I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. David's admitting, I know I deserve to die here. Uriah's blood is on my hands. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth may declare your praise. Notice two times that it mentions then, verse 13 Verse 14, it seems like it's added there by the translators, maybe not in the original language, but it gives us the idea here that what David is about to say is the result of all that he has just said. And notice that David was committing himself to do a couple things here. First of all, he was committing himself to witness. To witness, verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. He understood what it meant to be a transgressor, what it meant to be a sinner. And so he was committing here to use his experience as a transgressor himself to call all other transgressors to repentance, to, to, to show them how to get back to God. And then secondly, he was committing himself to worship, to worship. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then, in other words, if you forgive me, God, if you have mercy on me, God, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. So he he was committing here to sing like he had never sung before. And so David's natural response here to God's forgiveness was this intense desire to witness, to tell others about God, and to worship, to to tell God how grateful, how thankful he was. And I think those could serve as, as just two simple tests of true repentance. You want to know if you're truly repentant? How's your how's your witness? How's your worship? Could anyone tell that you have truly repented, that you've received God's amazing forgiveness by how faithfully you tell others about him? Or by how passionately you tell him how thankful you are? Why was it all about witnessing and and worshiping and serving God and obeying God rather than just grabbing the bull or the ox and heading off to the temple to, 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 to make a sacrifice. Well, look at verse 16. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. David knew there, there was no sacrifice. Even if he wanted to bring a sacrifice, there was no sacrifice prescribed in the Jewish law for adultery and murder. Go directly to 
jail, go directly to the place where you get stoned. Don't pass go, don't collect $200, don't even think about going by the temple, there's no need, you're going to die. That's how serious God was about adultery and murder. And so there was no sacrifice that he could bring even if he wanted to. And so, again, David knew God wasn't interested in some external acts. He wasn't looking for some outward show. There was no hoops that he could jump through to show God that he was repentant. I'm sure he remembered what Samuel had said to, to Saul when Saul had claimed that he'd obeyed the Lord and Saul, Samuel said, well, what's this bleeding of the sheep I hear? Meh, what is that all about? Oh, the guys thought it would be a good idea to save some of the sheep and we'll sacrifice them to God and, and thank him for the defeat of the Malachites. And Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. In other words, you should have just obeyed the word of God. He would have much rather had you do that than, than, than bring these sacrifices. You say, okay, if he's not looking for external acts, he's not looking for sacrifices, some outward show, what is he looking for? Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are, again, not a bull, not a cow, not a sheep, not a goat, not a dove, not a loaf of bread. The sacrifices of God are a what? Broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. I think that verse, verse 17, summarizes the attitude of a true repenter as they walk back to the Lord. This should be your heart, this should be my heart as we find ourselves away from the Lord and we're taking these steps back to the Lord this, this should be our attitude, that we have a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. This idea of brokenness here is the idea of being subdued or trained, kind of like a, a wild horse that been, that, that's been tamed, that David had run off and, 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 and gotten into all sorts of stuff he shouldn't have, and, and God had to break him. And so now he was broken. And he had a contrite heart. He was, he was sorrowful. He was remorseful for having sinned. Now, being sad is not all that God is looking for. There, there's, there's, a, there's what's called a, a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. Uh, Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. He says, I now rejoice that you, not that you were made sorrowful, but that, that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. There's a whole lot of people that feel sorry about their sin, but they never do anything about it. They never turn away from it. They never give it up. Well, guess what? That's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow, true brokenness, true, true, true contriteness, it, it leads you and produces in you repentance. Notice the last two verses. David shifted his focus off of himself to the nation of Israel. 
that God had called him to lead and, and he went from how his sin had affected him personally to how it had affected Israel corporately. He says, by your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Why was David saying that? Well, he he knew that his sin had affected the entire nation, that that it, excuse me, it, it had weakened the cause of religion. It had caused God's enemies to mock. In fact, Nathan even said that, that, that his sin had given occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme. And I think this is a great reminder for us here that, that, that our sin doesn't just affect us. You never sin in a vacuum. It affects everyone around you, your spouse, your, your family members, your, 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 your kids, your grandkids, your brothers, your sisters, your moms, your dads, your grandparents. It affects your friends. It affects other church members. There's a lot at stake when we sin. And so David here was just asking God to to graciously build up what his sin had destroyed. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. And then he says, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices. Then you'll be okay with sacrifices. In burnt offering, in a whole burnt offering, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. What David was describing here was was nothing less than a national revival where where sacrifices were coming in like crazy and and they were being done with pure motives and a a pure heart and they were whole burnt offerings. Not just, hey, we're going to give you part of it, which they were allowed to do. We're going to offer part of this and keep the rest. We're going to give it to the priest. We're going to take it to serve our family, provide for our family. That was allowable at times. They said, no, we're giving it all to you, God. We're We're not keeping anything for ourselves. And then young bulls, this was the largest, this was the most costly offering you could give to the Lord. And so real repentance here is is marked by by true brokenness that leads to complete obedience. True repentance is marked by true brokenness that leads to complete obedience. Obedience. And so you need to ask yourself a question here, and that is if you have never been truly broken over your sin, if you have no consistent pattern of obedience in your life, if you have no passion for the lost to tell others about Christ, if, if you're apathetic in worship, you have no desire to obey and serve the Lord, then you need to seriously question whether or not you've truly repented whether or not you're truly saved. John the Baptist said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The Apostle Paul said uh, that we should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. It's not that the deeds save us, right? But they prove that we're saved. They're, they're, They're evidence of genuine repentance. And so the best evidence of true repentance is a commitment to live an obedient life. We're going to get there in John 15. That's what Jesus told his disciples. 
If you love me, you'll what? Obey me. And so here we have four steps that every one of us must take to get back in a right relationship with God. Cry for mercy, confess your sin, call for forgiveness, and commit to obey. Now hold on. Don't pack up. Don't put your stuff away. I've got one more thing I need to say to those of you who are not Christians and one more thing to say to those who are Christians, okay? If you're not a Christian and you've never repented of your sin, you've never committed your life to obey and serve the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? You can take these four steps right now, this morning, for the very first time. Because you see, every one of us, in order to be saved, in order to be a Christian, this is the path of salvation. This is in some way the gospel. This is the, the sinner's prayer, if you will. The Bible says God is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to what? Repentance. God wants you to repent this morning. If you're, not a, if you're not a Christian, he wants you to repent. And Peter gave the crowd great hope. In Acts 3.19, he said, listen, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Listen, that's what some of you unbelievers need more than anything else is, is a, you need to be refreshed because your life is a wreck right now. It, it, it stinks. It's a mess. Why? Because it's just, you're just living in sin. But the good news of the gospel is that if you repent and you return to the Lord, he'll wipe away your sins, he'll, he'll clean up your life, and, and times of refreshing will come. What a great promise. What a great hope. Now, for those of us who are Christians, we need to take these four steps every day. You're like, what? Every day? Well, do you sin every day? Or is that just me? We sin every day. And, and successful sanctification requires daily ongoing repentance. And so there's a sense where we all take these steps once in that crisis of conversion. But then it just becomes a lifestyle. Not to earn our salvation or to keep ourselves saved, but, but to, just to deal with remaining sin in our life. And in fact, I would say this, that how quickly we take these four steps after we sin proves how mature we are in Christ. I mean, does it take you months to work through this process? Does it take you weeks does it take you days? Does it take you hours? Does it take you minutes? Sometimes you can take these four steps like 30 seconds and you're back, right? You messed up and boom, you're back in 30 seconds or less. Obviously, sometimes it takes longer than that, but the point is, one of the ways you know that you're growing in godliness is the amount of time that it takes for you to repent is getting less and less. Amen? 
I mean, sometimes our growth in Christ's likeness is, is not noticeable so much in, by how little we sin. Because you're like, well, I don't know about you, but the more I grow in Christ, it, it seems like I'm sinning more. Well, you're becoming more sensitive to your sin is what's happening, right? Things you didn't realize were sin, you realize are now sin. You're like, oh, man, I'm just such a sinner, right? So sometimes our growth in godliness is not noticeable by how, how, how little we sin, but by how fast we repent when we sin. That's what you've got to look at. And so the next time your sin finds you out, or when you hear the cock crow, as Peter did, or when the Spirit says to you, you are the man, I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to Psalm 51 and follow David's example and find your way back to God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for David and his, his life and even while tragic, his sin and his repentance. And Lord, thank you that his repentance is as notorious as his sin. And that's evidence of that, that he truly repented. Because we know as much about his repentance as we do about his sin. And we're grateful for that, Father. And thank you for the example that we've been left in Psalm 51, Psalm 32, of how to deal with sin in our own lives. And Lord, I pray as we grow in godliness that you would help us to, um, by your grace, lessen the, the length of time that it takes for us to go back, to follow these four steps back to you. And Lord, for those who may be here this morning that have never trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, that you would use David's example, David's example to show them the way to repent and return to you so that they might experience times of refreshing in their lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.